Hi, I'm Joel McMahon, pastor at San Philip United Methodist Church in San Philip, Texas, which is a, a few miles west of Houston. And as we gather together today, uh, we welcome you to our latest podcast, but let's bow our heads now for a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we bow before you at this time. We pray, O oh Lord, that uh, you would just be with everyone who is uh, ill with this virus right now with COVID-19, that you would touch them with your healing grace and that you would restore them to health. We pray for our loved ones that are facing this and we pray for those who are listening who are uh, going through this and suffering from it right now. Lord, we pray for our land. We pray for our country with all the division that's going on in it that need not be. Lord, our heart's desire is to be one as a country, one as a people, and we know it's your desire that we all be one in you. And so we pray in Jesus' name that you would bring revival to this land because we know that's the only true way that we can all be one. Lord, we pray for those who are facing financial difficulties, that you would be the provider for them, that you would reveal yourself as, as uh, Jehovah Jireh, their provider, even right now as we speak, Lord, and give them confidence in you. We pray, Lord, that you would just uh, uh, be with us now as we dig into your word and learn of you. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at Luke, the 15th chapter, the 17th through the 24th verses. And this is a very familiar passage to a lot of you, I'm sure. It's the very middle of the story of the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus told uh, back uh, over 2,000 years ago. But there's a message in here for you today. And as I read these words, these words from the lips of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I ask you to listen for these key words and phrases. Father, hired servant, no longer worthy, and son. Now, hear the word of the Lord. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, 
and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word today. Well, as we look at this passage, we see that the prodigal son wanted to be treated like a servant because of his bad behavior, but the father still treated him like a son. And this is the main point I want to make today, and it is so important. Please listen. We're not children of God because we serve. We serve because we're children of God. That's the message. That's what I want to get across. And it's one that it may be hard for you to receive. Yes, we serve. That's a part of being the Lord's. It's a big part of it. In fact, many times the apostles referred to themselves as uh, servants of the Lord in their epistles. We're children of God because of our birthright, though not because of our behavior. Now, when I say birthright, I'm talking about the birthright that is ours when we're born again. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we read this. He came to that which belonged to him, and they who were his own did not receive him and did not welcome him, but to as many as did receive and welcome him. He gave the authority to become the children of God. That is, to those who believe in his name, who owe their birth neither to bloods nor to the will of the flesh, nor to the will of man, but to God. They are born of God. Now, if you're born again, if you have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, God has granted you, has given you the privilege of being his child. In fact, this word up here where it says he gave the authority to become children of God can also be transfer, translated as power. Sometimes it's translated as privilege. Sometimes it's translated as right. Now, let me tell you, authority, power, privilege, rights, they're given. But unless they're exercised, they're not really enacted. And this word, I think privilege fits it more than anything else. He gives us the privilege to become children of God. We're born separated from God by our sin, but he gives us a way to be restored to him. And just as this son had been a long way off and come back and his father says he's alive again, so we, when we come to him in repentance and believe on him, all of a sudden, 
we are born again. And that birth makes us children of God. Now you see, employees take their wages and go home. But a child stays in the house. A child is a part of the family. Jesus says it this way, And a servant does not abide in the house forever, but a son, and you could add, or a daughter, abides forever. Paul puts it this way, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. One of the main messages of the story of the prodigal son is that God will not take you as a hireling or a servant. He will only bring you in as his child. It's not like you can work as a servant, hire on and work as a servant, and then be promoted to be a child. That's not the way it works. I had a friend that tried this once. I met him whenever I was uh, in a counseling course uh, at a college. And uh, I was already pastoring, serving a church, and we began talking in breaks. And it turns out that he had been close to God at one time in his life and then drifted so far away, he didn't think he could ever be accepted again by God. And he was in this course right now, because or at that time, because he was wanting to learn how to counsel those who had been uh, pulled into uh, drugs and alcohol so that he could help them out of the same pit that he had found himself in. He told me after we'd visited for a while and got to know each other that uh, he'd really like to get back into church but he didn't really think that he was ever going to be accepted by God again. But what he did know was that the crowd he had been running with was wrong, that he wanted to be with God's people. He wanted to be in the house of the Lord. And he realized that I was, I guess he thought, more accepting of people than some other pastors were. And he asked if it'd be okay if he just started attending our church. And he didn't realize it, but he was living out of what David said in Psalm 84. There it says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And this is what he was saying as he was asking if he could just start attending our church. I said, yeah, come on. And it wasn't long before that that he discovered that as he had taken just a few steps toward God, God had run out and hugged him and brought him on back into the kingdom. And he joined the church, his wife joined the church, his son joined the church, and They became very, very good members. But you see, at one point he thought he wasn't eligible for heaven. He thought that even if he was going to go to hell when he died, it was better to be in God's house while he was alive. 
but he wound up knowing he had eternal life once more. Now, whenever the son came home, his father ran out, greeted him, hugged him, kissed him, and then he gave him three things. He gave him a robe, he gave him a ring, and he gave him shoes. And these are extremely important things. These are not the sort of things that a father gives to his servants. These are the things that a father gives to his child. They have very strong significance. And I want to look at all three of these in the next three weeks. And we're going to start today with the robe. And all the way through scripture, we see the robe of righteousness that the Lord places on us when we come into his kingdom. In Isaiah 61.10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, I want us to look at three things today about the robe of righteousness. First of all, let me ask you a question. Is the righteousness which comes from God, and that means being in a right relationship with God, is that earned or is it a gift? Now, most of you would answer, it's a gift, But I submit to you that most of us really act like it's earned. You're right, it is 100% a gift and 0% earned. Look at the story. What has the son done to earn these gifts? What has he done to earn the robe, the ring, the shoes? Absolutely nothing and he knows it. He's been a prodigal. He has squandered his inheritance without restraint in sex, promiscuity, and drinking. So what has he done to earn these gifts? Not a thing. Look at what he says. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, did you notice that he says, I'm no longer worthy? That means that at some point in the past, he thought he was worthy. His thinking is that when I stayed home and did the right thing, I was worthy. But now that I've left home and done the wrong thing, I'm not worthy. If you listen to the message last week, I, I mentioned this in connection with loving God. You remember Romans 8, 28. Uh, and, and how does it go? It goes, uh, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we were looking at work at loving God and how some people thought that loving God was uh, something that you did. Uh, When I'm good, I'm loving God, and the promise that all things work together for good applies. When I slip up, 
then I'm not loving God and the promise doesn't apply. Now, what we're talking about today helps to refine and define this performance issue even more. Because you see, we're prone to think about it this way. We come to church, and if we've had a bad week and haven't been doing things that we knew that we should, we think, I'm not worthy to worship God. I'm a hypocrite. Nobody knows what I did last week, or heaven forbid, what I did last night. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son of God or a daughter of God. Then, when we've had a good week, when we've like taken some clothes to goodwill and we've given the guy out there on the corner begging a dollar uh, and we've even held our tongue and we didn't give that person that ticked us off a piece of our mind, we weren't too ugly to anybody, Maybe we read a devotional about five times last week, and so we're feeling pretty good when we come into church. And then we look around, and we know we did better than that person over there. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm worthy. Yeah, right now, I am worthy. Well, let me tell you, that's totally a performance mentality. And Christians operate out of this all the time. Well, if you're one of the Christians doing that, I have some good news and some news that may be kind of bad for you today. Because, you see, you have never been worthy. If you do all the good things I just mentioned and a whole lot more, those actions, will, will, they, were, they will never make you worthy. Now, I can't talk about this without remembering a young lady my wife worked with while I was in seminary. And the young lady came into the office one morning and said, well, I'm sure glad I was saved when I was eight years old, or I'd sure be going to hell after what I did last night. Now, you know, I always cringe when I think of this. And I confess I can't help but question her salvation. But you know, when I really stop and think about it, she was more on the right track than a whole lot of really self-righteous Christians are today. To clarify, let me put this question we're considering today another way. Let me ask you this question. Is your righteousness earned or is it imputed? And I asked people to uh, uh, in, in church this morning to ask, uh, I asked them to raise their hands if they thought that it was earned. Nobody raised their hands. I asked them if they thought it was imputed. And most of them raised their hands. And I said, okay, so now then, let me get you, um, raise your hands again. I want to ask one of you what imputed means. And man, the hands just went down. Yeah, it's imputed, but they had no idea what imputed meant. In Romans 4, 6, Paul says this, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man 
to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now he's talking about Abraham here and he continues down in verses 23 and 24. He says, now it was not written for his sake, talking about Abraham, not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then back in the third verse, he says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, the word, the Greek word that's translated imputed and is translated accounted in the passages that we just read are the same word. And this is a legal and accounting term. And in the passage we, we just read, the word translated to impute is also translated accounted. The best example I could come up with is from back in my uh, insurance adjusting days. In civil law, let's say you're making a delivery for your boss and a squirrel just runs out in front of you and just skids to a stop and looks at you just right into your eyes, just scared to death right there in front of the van as you're barreling down the road. And the whole thing just startles the fool out of you and you swerve into the next lane to avoid this little squirrel. And you just cream a car that costs more than your house. The driver of the other car isn't really hurt, thank goodness, but the car is totaled. You're having a hard time coming up with money to make the payments on your own car. Now, <coughs> the law says that your boss is responsible for your debt and that he has to pay. You see, it was your negligence. It was your fault. It was your debt. But because of the master service I'm sorry, master-servant relationship. He was on an errand for you. It was a joint venture between you and him. He is held responsible for your debt, and he has to pay. Your debt is imputed to him. Fortunately, his insurance covers the bill that he owes because of your actions and Nobody has to go to the poorhouse or lose their job or their business for that matter. But you see, the debt you incurred was imputed, was put over on your boss, and you are off the hook. He pays. This is kind of what's happening with Abraham. When Abraham believed God, God put righteousness in Abraham's account. Abraham didn't have any righteousness of his own, but God put Abraham's son in his account. He made Jesus to become sin so that Abraham and you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We could have a righteousness, a right relationship with him,
not based on works, not based on anything that we could ever do. But you see, it all is put on Jesus. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And that's the debt that we owe. God, when you believe him, takes your debt and gives it to his son and puts his son's assets in your account. And that's why your account is balanced and you owe nothing. It's been paid for and the value of Jesus' death has been imputed to your account. Yes, we serve, but we don't serve to earn. We have to serve from a son or daughter mentality, not from a servant or slave mentality. That's point number one. Point number two, do not listen to the accuser. In Zechariah, the third chapter, the first through the fourth verses, the prophet has a vision concerning Joshua, the high priest, who's going to be leading God's people back out of captivity. And this is verse 1, starting with verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away his filthy garments from him. And he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity. I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. All Joshua could do was stand there with the devil right beside him, accusing him. He stands there in filthy garments that represent his iniquity. Now, we think of iniquity as sin, but it's more than that. You see, even what we, from our viewpoint, often consider goodness apart from the Lord cleansing and giving us life is iniquity in the eyes of the Most Holy God. Notice what Isaiah says in, uh, verse, in, in verse 6, but we are all like unclean things. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. You see, apart from God imparting His righteousness to us, we have none. And no matter what we do, how good we think it is, to God, it is as filthy rags. The best we can do is not as good as the worst thing about God. Joshua's priestly garments were as filthy rags before God. Now, we approach things from the wrong perspective uh, because we're always wanting to figure out 
uh, what's good and what's evil, and I need to be sure and do what's good, and I need to struggle with good and evil, that's a distraction, people. It's a distraction that was begun back in the Garden of Eden. If you'll remember, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sinned in doing so, they became fallen. They died spiritually. They became fallen and sinful with the knowledge of good and evil. You see, we can't handle the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tree of death in the Garden of Eden. If you're struggling with trying to figure out what's good and what's evil so you can choose the right thing to do, you're totally off course. You need to change your thinking because you're trying to handle things from a position that has already brought death. The choice is much deeper and more serious than you have ever imagined. The choice isn't between good and evil. It's between death and life. And so God removes Joshua's filthy garments, his iniquities, his total inadequacy, his total inadequate righteousnesses, and he replaces them with rich robes. The Lord removes his iniquity he rebukes Joshua's accuser, and then he robes him in rich robes. Did you notice who is at Joshua's right hand? The accuser. Some people read this wrong and think that the accuser is at the Lord's right hand. But now at the right hand of God, you don't find Satan. You find you have an intercessor. Because whenever the Lord returned to heaven, it says that he sat down and he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And there he intercedes for us. In Romans 8, 34, we read, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Folks, the accuser has been cast down and defeated, and all he can do now is try to deceive you into condemning yourself. <clears throat> now, a lot of people get saved, and they understand that Jesus took away their sin. But what they fail to realize is that Jesus also takes away our guilt and our shame. You don't have to live in guilt or shame anymore. You have been covered with a robe of righteousness. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you as guilty and shameful. If you've been lauded, haunted, or been living haunted by guilt and shame, quit listening to the accuser. Realize that your guilt and your shame have been covered and you no longer have to leave with either, live with either anymore. Now, guilt <clears throat> is feeling bad against, uh, bad about things that you've done and that you've done to other people. 
Shame is grounded in feeling bad because of what others have done to you. I'll share one example from my experience as a Christian counselor many years ago that I think brings this all into perspective. We'll call her Sally. She confided into me that she'd been sexually abused and emotionally scarred from an early age and on into adulthood. And one day in a counseling session, as I was praying for her and we were praying together for her to be healed from all the things that were now behind her and that the Lord would help her to be freed from her past so she could live in the present and look forward to the future with Him. As we, were, as we finished praying, she was changed. And very timidly, she asked, if she could share what had happened to her while we were praying. And she was tearful. And she said, while we were praying, all of a sudden, it's like I just wasn't here anymore. I was before the throne of the Lord and I could see myself there. And it was beautiful. And it was bright. And I was beautiful. I wasn't large like I am now. And I had beautiful, long, flowing hair. And I was wearing the most beautiful, white, flowing gown. It was all just so beautiful. And like I was standing right there. And then the Lord said to me, and her voice broke as she said that. See, this is how I see you right now. Her guilt was gone. Her shame was gone. And she had the Lord's peace and joy like never before. She was healed. The Lord had clothed her in a robe of righteousness and he let her see what it was like to be seen by him in that robe of righteousness. The clean, spotless robe of a son or a daughter, not a servant. No, you don't deserve it. You're not worthy. You haven't earned it. But the Lord has deemed you worthy. And He has made you worthy. Righteousness is yours because He has done it. Now, knowing this, brings us to verse 3, or the third part. Live like a son or a daughter of God, clothed in that robe of righteousness, not earned by you, but it's yours. Remember, you're not His child because you serve. You serve because you're His child. Have you ever checked out something on scopes and actually found out it was true? Well, 
This is a true story that even Snopes had to confirm as authentic, and I think it sums up what I've been trying to get across pretty well today. Fred Craddock was a seminary professor who was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And one morning, they were eating breakfast in a little uh, restaurant, hoping to enjoy a quiet family meal. And while they were waiting for their food, they noticed a distinguished-looking white-haired man moving from table to table, visiting with the guests. The professor leaned over and whispered to his wife, I hope he doesn't come over here. But sure enough, the man did come over to their table. Where are you folks from? he asked in a friendly voice. Oklahoma, they answered. Oh, great to have you here in Tennessee, the stranger said. What do you do for a living? I teach at a seminary, Fred Craddock replied. Oh, so you teach teachers how to preach, do you? Well, I've got a really great story for you. And with that, the gentleman pulled up a chair and sat down at the table with the couple. And the professor inwardly groaned and thought to himself, Oh, great. Just what I need, another preacher story. The man started, You see that mountain over there? Pointing out the restaurant window. Not far from the base of that mountain, there was a boy born to an unwed mother. He had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was always asked the same question. Hey boy, who's your daddy? Whether he was at school in the grocery store or drug store, people would ask the same question. Who's your daddy? He would hide at recess and lunchtime from the other students. He would avoid going into stores because that question just hurt him so bad. When he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to his church. and He would always go in late and slip out early to avoid hearing the question, who's your daddy? But one day the new preacher said the benediction so fast that he got caught and he had to walk out with the crowd. And just about the time he got to the back door, the new preacher, not knowing anything about him, put his big hand on his shoulder and he asked him, son, who's your daddy? The whole church got deathly quiet. He could feel every eye in the church just looking at him. Now, everyone would finally know to the answer, well, would know the answer to the question, who's your daddy? This new preacher, though, sensed the situation around him and using discernment that only the Holy Spirit could give, said the following to that scared little boy. Wait a minute, he said. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance now. You're a child of God. With that, he patted the boy on his shoulder and said, Boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go out and claim it. And with that, the boy smiled 
for the first time in a long, long time. And he walked out the door a changed person. He was never the same again. Whenever anybody asked him, who's your daddy? He'd just tell them, I'm a child of God. The distinguished gentleman got up from the table and said, isn't that a great story? The professor responded that it really was a great story. And as the man turned to leave, he said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. And he walked away. The seminary professor and his wife were stunned. He called the waitress over and asked her, do you know who that man was who just left that was sitting at our table? And the waitress grinned and said, of course, Everybody here knows him. That's Ben Hooper, the most beloved man in all of Tennessee. And then Dr. Craddock remembered his own grandfather telling him the story of an illegitimate boy who grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee. A boy who became an attorney. A boy whom the people of Tennessee later elected to two terms as their governor. Ben Hooper claimed his inheritance. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's time for you to go out and claim yours. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.